Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. If I sound particularly mellifluous or euphonious today, it is because I am borrowing the studios at Fox News um, because uh, the mountain couldn't come to Muhammad, so I went to the mountain to get Chris Starwalt back on the show. Um, and we'll t- say hello to him in just two seconds. This week's episode is brought to you by Stamps.com and by Audible. And we'll hear more about them in a little bit. But first, I know I'm a aesthetically, intellectually, experientially a big step down from Dana Perino. <laughs> well, I just want to say welcome to the Tony Snow studio at the Fox News Channel's Washington Bureau. You are welcome in this space. It is, it is, it is a nice space. I do the Benson and Harf show from here quite often. It is, and they are fancy. And so you are stepping down from them with me. So we are both slumming. And yes. I think that's what's important here. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's kind of a, there's sort of a Zen question about <laughs> who is bringing down the other standards more. <laughs> I, I think, I think the, the important thing to remember here is that it's the Friday. We're taping this Friday before Thanksgiving. And I, for one, am, have already given up. So I'm, I'm, I'm there. Are you, uh, are you going home to West Virginia? No, I'm going. A, a very, very dear friend of mine has invited us to their family home way out in the country. Uh, there will be shooting of guns. There will be dogs. There will be mud. There will be all of the requisite things for Thanksgiving. So this is very exciting. Excellent. Excellent. We are going to, uh, my mom's place oh, nice. in Weehawken, New Jersey. Oh, nice. And because we could not find, cause, Jack Butler, the producer of this show and my aide de camp, is selfishly going home to Ohio, so he couldn't house sit and pet sit the dogs. So we got to bring the dogs up there, which is going to be um, a whole thing problematic because my mom has some very aristocratic cats. Oh no! Yeah, and then the animals will get to uh, reenact uh, Wee Hawkins' most famous moment in history, of course, the Burr Hamilton duel. Yes, that will be very exciting. <laughs> um, I think in that matchup. The Spaniel would be Burr. No, it would be Hamilton, um, just in terms of losing the fight. Losing the fight. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, in another podcast uh, that you mentioned before, when we did reader questions this week, I think it was John Podoritz that wanted to know whether Jasper could kill – would Dana's dog Jasper could kill one of your dogs if it came down to it. Yeah. And I, I answered that on Twitter, actually. Um, I think Jasper probably has it in him to take out Pippa because Pippa's a lover, not a fighter. Yeah. But Zoe would make – Short work of Jasper. Yeah, if you ever are fighting anybody with an umlaut in their name, yeah. this is a, then pay attention. Well, I mean, she's 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 a white trash swamp dog, <laughs> and you know, Jasper comes from elevated Hungarian stock. Yes, I, this I, is true. I, I think those attenuated Magyar genes are not up to <laughs> the sort of Daryl from The Walking Dead fighting spirit of of my dingo. Attenuated Magyar genes is now going to be my next band name. That's very good. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I guess we should in the, I have some deep thumb sucky questions I want to get to, but let's start with the rank punditry because okay. that's what you do for a living is I don't mean to disparage it. <laughs> but it's good for you. No, it's good. <laughs> no I, I do. I, I do a lot of it, but you know, you go on TV to explain what the hell happened, right? Right. So it seems like, um, the, the air of good feelings for Republicans coming out of election night has dissipated quite a bit and it's dawned on a lot of people that it may have not been a city leveling tsunami, 
but it was pretty wavy when you take into account some stuff. Do you disagree with that? Right. And I think here it depends very much. <clears throat> uh, Sean Trent had a very good piece on this where he had the started with the right question, which is what's a wave right. to you? What what constitutes a wave? By one definition, it was obviously a wave because the electorate was obviously moving substantially in one direction and not another. The it was not it was not ambiguous. Yes, the Republicans, because of the worst Democratic Senate map since the 1920s, just horrible for them. Uh, the Republicans have gotten one and they'll get two pickups in the Senate. We're now at 39 House pickups for Democrats. Uh, that's the most since Watergate. Right. And this, by the way, happened in a year with the highest midterm turnout since 1914. Right. So this is not a – Midterm. Is that, I've heard that stat. Is right. that in absolute numbers or is that in as a percentage? percentage. So both ways. Right. As okay. a percentage, this trumps the 1966 referendum on uh, LBJ's Vietnam policy. Right. And this goes back to the question about the referendum on should we be getting into the First World War or not. Right. So people were freaked out and voting in huge numbers. And as they voted, it, it, you, Democrats are, have been able to say in the past 40 years, when midterms didn't go their way, they were able to say, well, look, our voters don't go and vote in midterms. Right. And in fact, we'll be back as they were twice with, as they were for Obama. We'll be back next time. And this is just, we don't do well in biennials. Everybody voted. Right. It was a full, it, you had, you had, the best turnout uh, in a hundred year, more than a hundred years, and it was clearly good for Democrats. And it was only like what fourteen million shy of what twenty sixteen was, or right. something like that, right? It was it was astonishing. So taken that way, it's a wave in the sense that there was a direction. Now it's not a wave in the sense that, as the Republicans saw in twenty ten, where silly stuff happens. Right? right? Democrats didn't win. I think we would be having a very different discussion if Democrats had won in Georgia and Florida. Right. Uh, for the governorships. D uh, Republicans in 2010, there's a lot of ways you can say that Scott Walker's victory in Wisconsin was the harbinger of a lot of things that happened in the upper Midwest for Republicans. And moving beyond the what, – what we used to call them, Sam's Club Republicans. So it used to be the exurban Republican right. and the, 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 moving beyond that to really more um, economically downscale voters and uh, and – Locking in with blue collar white voters that uh, there was not an equal occurrence of that for Democrats. They did not. Again, it, we're talking about 15,000 votes or 30,000 votes or in the case of Stacey Abrams, like 45 or 50,000 votes. Um, so not huge numbers, but we would be having a very different discussion if Democrats could point to Beto O'Rourke in Texas, right. if they could point to Stacey Abrams in Georgia. We Whatever the whatever the whatever the data say, we still always come to our conclusions about this stuff anecdotally, and they don't have a wow. Can you believe they have people who won house races that were shocked in Oklahoma, right? Uh, swept all of Orange County, all of those things, but they don't have a hero that they can point to out of this in the way that Republicans could hold up a governor in Illinois, Massachusetts, Maryland, Wisconsin, Michigan, right? I mean, maybe if Kristen Cinema had been the clear winner on election night, mm -hmm. it would have psychologically felt a little bit more like that. But no, I think that 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 sounds fair. What so one of the arguments that you hear, you know, when you drop some Benjamins on your shoeshine guys and you know, you gotta try to get the skinny on the street. That's right. Um I used to have a rule when I'm 
me and my reprobate buddies would go to the track to Laurel or go see the Trotters or whatever, um, Sport of Kings. And, uh, we each had to go up to at least three people at the track and say, what do you know? What do you hear? <laughs> just to see what they would say. Not like we could understand half of it, but it was just kind of fun. Anyway, um, one of the arguments that you do hear is that this portends badly for Trump's reelection efforts because you had in row, first of all, on the big picture, you just saw the president's coalition shrink, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he won because of a lot of these Republican or Republican leaning voters in the suburbs who voted the other way. Right. Um, the biggest example of that is just the hollowing out of the white suburban female vote, right? But you also just saw, because of where a lot of those suburbs are, uh, with the exception of maybe Ohio, you saw the Democratic coalition expanding in states that Trump needs to repeat a win in the electoral college. How much stake do you put in that, do you think? Because, you know, you talk to some people and say, well, you know, the midterms are never predictive of presidentials, and there's a lot of evidence to say that that's true. On the other hand, you just look at Georgia, you look at um, Arizona, you can see some places where it does look like the Democrats might be changing, or the, just the electoral map might be changing in different kind of ways. In a 100 years, presidents who have won a first term who sought a second term have only been defeated three times. It just doesn't, it, it is, it is very rare. Uh, and something Republicans didn't understand in 2012, they won the smashing victory in 2010. 63 seats, all these governorships, they said, look at this, this is amazing. And they were shocked in 2012 when Barack Obama won and won not a landslide, but handily, he had a, deci- right. he had a decisive reelection victory. The Republicans were not, it, they couldn't there, – there was cognitive dissonance. How can it be that – look at the map. Look at all the red counties. Look at how red the country is and how come we can't win. And I, I always find it funny that we – that recently we were having a discussion about how Republicans can't win national elections. Right, right, They've right. gerrymandered the House into their favor, but they can never win national elections again. Democrats lose one election. Democrats can't win national elections and blah, 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 blah. I think the electoral map will depend very substantially – on which direction Democrats decide to go. So there's a Sunbelt strategy, which is pick somebody progressive who connects with minority voters uh, and can build these coalitions. Uh, Abrams, Gillum, and O'Rourke, um, O'Rourke, an, an honorary member of the Hispanic Caucus, um, <laughs> but for these candidates, they say, and Cinema in Arizona, that you can say, look, there is a way that if you can get uh, people of color and, and you can build this new coalition, these states are available. If they could take Florida away from Trump, then they can they can prevent Donald Trump from getting reelected. There's no right. there's no path to victory that for Donald Trump that doesn't include Florida. Right. Then there's the other way of thinking, which is Sherrod Brown and company. Look at how well you can do as a very liberal Democrat in bright red Ohio. For the fact that Mike DeWine won, Mike DeWine, who is like, you know, older than, you know, Methuselah and has been in Ohio politics forever and is the the embodiment of Ohio Republicanism. But it's also drop dead sexy. Well, there's that. Yeah. And that can't look, I don't I don't want to turn him into I don't want to objectify him, but yes, yeah. it can't be overlooked. Um Mike DeWine winning there, but at the same time Sherrod Brown winning so handily 
Democrats say, hey, look at that and look at the candidates in Wisconsin and Michigan, which are about reconnecting to the labor roots, which are reconnecting to blue collar white voters and all of that stuff. I think the the answer for Democrats probably is do both. Mm -hmm. Uh, The answer is probably find somebody who can rebuild the Obama coalition to whatever degree that they can, which means not a uh, Democratic socialist who is a person of color, but probably – Something one one from column A and one from column B Mm -hmm. that you have somebody like Obama who was more moderate than the Bernie wing of the party, but because of his identity and his and his story, uh, had automatic credence with those folks. So he he did he did people forget Barack Obama did very well very well with working class white voters in places like Pennsylvania. We saw 26 point and 24 point swings in places like Genesee County, Michigan, places, uh, the, you know, in Metro Flint, uh, and in places like, uh, Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, which is the Scranton, Scranton area. So a lot, there are millions of Americans who voted for Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Um, how do you get them? I don't know who's the right pick, but that elect, what I can discern from the midterm results are two things. One, uh, the Democrats are more unified than we thought, uh, they're and energized. That's very clear. And thing two is the Republican coalition is, is fractured. They're not there. Um, you can't, the Republicans can't win without rural, Blue collar and sm- the the bedrock of the Republican Party are small towns. Mm-hmm. Bedrock of the Republican Party are places like where I grew up uh, in West Virginia, a uh, county with fifty thousand residents in it. That's small towns in the small cities and small towns in the United States, in the United States and rural areas is bedrock of the Republican Party. But they can't do it also without with the suburbs. They have to win the suburbs too. They don't have to win it by a lot. It's sort of like the Catholic vote. Uh, the president, whoever gets elected, generally wins the Catholic vote, right. but it's by a point or two. Right. And that's all the Republicans really need to do. They just need a point or two uh, advantage in the suburbs. That's not what they got this time. Yeah. So I have a theory about Ohio because it it is interesting. It does look, you know, if you could just do a straight up trade, if you look at the results of this and say, okay, so, we, you know, Republicans lost Arizona. You know, maybe we're worried about the Pennsylvania stuff. But to get Ohio and Florida solidly in the Republican column, that's a great trade, right? You would – and Florida voted Republican this time around, and Ohio, with the exception of Brown, voted Republican. But I have a theory about Ohio. Because Kasich, who I'm not a huge fan of, never embraced Trump, right, never endorsed Trump, and was still, though, a pretty solid Republican governor in his state or popular, right? And DeWine, as you were saying, comes very much from that sort of stolid Republican, not quite Country Club Republican. Bob because, Taft. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and Portman, too, and all of that, that in some ways, because of that disconnect, the suburban voters, the suburban Republicans in Ohio didn't feel like they had to send a message when voting um, about Trump because mm-hmm. they still, for whatever, for those peculiar reasons having to do with, with Kasich and, and, and his sort of not getting on board, you could keep that coalition together. Sort of like it's the Kavanaugh coalition, yeah. right? It's like anti-Trump people, Trump skeptical people, wildly pro-Trump people. They all got on board for Kavanaugh. Right. And in terms of electoral politics, you sort of see a version of that in Ohio that you don't see in almost any of these other states. I think that, I think there is, uh, two things. First, uh, Florida went Republican. 
barely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very, and remember, Donald Trump won Florida very narrowly. Yes, yes. Um, landslide Rick Scott, uh, will now, now has won a governor's race by a point, um, a point and two thirds and will now win a Senate seat by two, three tenths of a point. Yeah. Um, Florida continues to be very narrowly. The, the Republicans advantage is not just small, but it is easily erased. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reality for Florida and will continue. And the Republican position in Florida will weaken in time. Ohio, I agree with everything that you're saying in terms of the national politics were different uh, because the Republicans are different. Uh, the leadership, the Republican leadership in Ohio is very different than it is nationally. And the Trump factor was Trump stayed out of Ohio. Uh, he hates Kasich. Yeah. Uh, well, he did one rally in uh, eastern Ohio. But basically, Trump hates Kasich. Ha- Kasich hates Trump. All of uh, that dynamic. But he didn't have to go to Ohio because right. the, the, uh, uh, Renacci uh, was never going to be competitive. And so what? I think there's another thing, though. And this is a larger demographic trend in the United States, which is these states are hollowing out. The people who are in Ohio, there will be fewer people. They're going to continue to lose house seats. And the people who are there are going to be older. The mm-hmm. the, the the population will shrink and the median age will rise mm-hmm. in Ohio as younger workers continue to go to places like – you know, I looked up the other day, the in-migration – in the previous five years, there was a half a million in migration to uh, Maricopa County, Arizona alone hmm. from inside the United States. The move south and the move west continues. Florida, in after the next uh, the next redistricting, Florida will now have more house seats than New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it's real, and what it is tending to do is where you have younger people. You will have more Democrats. Right. Where you have older people, you will have more Republicans. And as Ohio gets smaller and older, it will get more Republican as it goes. And I think that's been – certainly, if you want the the absolute case, Michigan is the absolute case. Detroit lost a million people from its metropolitan area with the over a decade with the collapse of the auto industry. And it suddenly became a swing state again. Right. And it, and it got back into play. Um, depopulation – and aging populations work for the current Republican coalition because in a big way, the current Republican coalition is built about cobbling together the Donald Trump's message about forgotten Americans right. and cobbling those folks back together and say, we've got to stand up for ourselves. These hippies in Austin, we don't, we're not talking about them. We're talking about real Americans who live in the Rust Belt. Right. I mean, the message of nostalgia for, oh man, call it 1958 America is understandably going to appeal to older, whiter people, right? Because right. You can understand why maybe younger African-American people aren't all that nostalgic right. for 1958. Exactly. They, they have some reservations. But if you go into any restaurant in my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia, there will be pictures. There, there are bound to be pictures on the wall, big blown up pictures of crowded city streets at Christmas time, yeah. of how everything was when Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel was running hot and the and Blaunox and all of this big business. And the, it, it was great. And everything was booming. And, you know, for 40 years. For as lo- or certainly as long as I have been hearing them, politicians of both parties have been coming to that part of the country and saying, we are bringing it back. And of course, you say, well, of course, you're not bringing it back. Right. No one is bringing it back. And that's that's not what's going to go on here. But Republicans finally figured out how to play the game that Democrats had been playing pretty successfully for a while. Yeah. I mean, that was the old argument about how 
Republicans wanted to live in the 1950s, but liberals wanted to work there, right? I mean, they <laughs> yeah, wanted that exactly, economy. You exactly, know? exactly. And I do think that part of the decline of labor unions who used to be able to give – this is a point that Peter Beinart was making. We were in a – did an event this week. Labor unions, look at West Virginia. Mm-hmm. They used the, – the job of the United Mine Workers was to tell white workers that their fate was bound up in – Voting Democratic, working Democrat, that the government was your friend, was there to help you, and that your problems aren't the result of, say, this evil caravan coming from the Central America. It's because corporate interests and all that. With the decline of those unions, the ability to just communicate that story for party building just really is broken down in a lot of ways. And you can see why those guys are much more amenable to – um, a Republican message of, of nostalgia for all that stuff. And uh, as those industries hollowed out and uh, that happened, you have that component and then you have the other very key component, I think, which I think with labor unions is quite reflective of what's happening in the Democratic Party uh, writ large now. When government worker unions began their, their real ascendancy in the 1970s, but th- then over the – in large numbers over the following 25 years – the priority shifted for organized labor, but then they also shifted for Democrats. The, right. ba- the power center and the money and the votes shifted. And guess what? Inside government worker unions, you have a lot more women. Mm-hmm. You have a lot more people of color. You have a totally different demographic subset. Uh, instead of guy, instead of Joe Sixpack right. going down to Follinsby to the mill, you have teachers and firefighters and bureaucrats and all of these folks, and it's a very different coalition. And right now, I listened to a uh, Intelligence Squared debate between moderate centrist Democrats, Steve Ratner on one side, and on the other side was um, Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders guy, mm-hmm. with another sort of progressive Democrat. And they were having this fight back and forth. And I laughed because at a certain point, I thought, well, anyone mentioned social issues. Right. Well, anyone mentioned culture here. And they just talked about it like this was purely an economic issue. You identified it. The caravan, even if you know that the president was exaggerating, even if you know that it was – or even if you were cynical and thought, you know what? He's doing this. He's tr- he's he's owning the libs. This right. is a troll. So you could either be gullible or you could be cynical. Even if you were cynical, you still know that he's saying to you, I care – don't forget about immigration. Right. Don't forget about immigration. And I think one of the ways that Democrats fell down in the interior of the country – was that on social issues, starting with at least abortion, but certainly abortion and then gay, then gay marriage, immigration now is a social issue, certainly on gun control, the inability of Democrats to talk to those voters and engage with those voters. If economic concerns fade because that economy faded, these voters – you're, and they're, especially when they're older, you can't just ignore that. You can't just ignore the the way we were. You right. have to talk about it. Well, that, that's a good setup, and I, and I do want to apologize. I just because I just assumed that your reputation preceded you when I introduced you. I didn't say who you were. Oh, uh, good point. So you are the uh, I'm the po- politics, politics editor, editor politics, politics editor, editor for Fox, Fox News. News Channel, and the host of the I'll Tell You What podcast, co-host of the Tell You What podcast with the lovely and talented Dana Perino. Also true. And you are the author of Every Man a King. Also true. Um, a book about a, a fun uh, book about the history of populism in America, which was so good, I, I believe I blurbed it. Generously blurbed. Yeah. And I appeared on your special series of podcasts about populism as well. Which people loved. So I want to talk about populism. But the, a related question, first and foremost, is 
Did you record the audio version of your book yourself? I did. You did. Did you enjoy it? I, it was excruciating at the beginning because I had a real director, uh, like a New York Broadway type and I, he was very demanding mm-hmm. and I found it to be, I was, these are my words. I've written them and, uh, on gradient issues of pronunciation where I preferred the pronunciation this way, but he thought that we should use number one and back and forth. It was frustrating for the first it's a short book, so it was frustrating for the first half of the first day. But then once we got going, I really liked him, and it was uh, actually great fun to do and also great fun to get people's responses to it. And I think I like audiobooks because uh, – especially for books like this that are not matters of study. Like your book, I had to – or your most recent book, like set it down. Leave it, leave it for, then come back and like, and notes, like there are notes in the book. Your lips got tired. (laughs) Exactly. But my book is a little more frolicsome. So you can just put it on and listen. I think it, I think it worked well. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in reading your own. I wish I had recorded my, recorded my first book. And it was because I got so many complaints about the person who did record my first book that I did my second two books. And I agree. It is unbelievably exhausting. People don't realize just how difficult it is to, with discipline, read the words, the way they're supposed to be read without any ad-libbing, without any ums and ahs and all and that kind of stuff. And you can't fix your mistakes. Right. Although it is interesting, if you record it yourself, you are allowed to change the text at, at the margins for little things. Mm-hmm. And But if you're a professional audiobook reader, you have to read whatever's in there. I didn't there. know that was the rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like uh, – if you hire a professional and he's a Ron Burgundy guy, he will he'll just read <laughs> "Go f yourself, San Diego." So, yeah. um, but I bring this up in part because I want to recommend uh, Chris's book to everybody, but also because our first sponsor this week is Audible, and Audible is where you are most likely to find the audio version of Every Man a King. It's this time of year when everyone is thinking about thoughtful gifts. And wouldn't Every Man a King be a wonderful oh, book? Oh, dear, dear, yes. And what would be really great is if we could generate so many purchases of Suicide of the West and Every Man a King that we would get on Amazon the frequently bought together. Frequently thing. bought together. Yeah. So, Peach, peaches and herb. So, But you should also think about giving yourself a gift, a gift of an, of an Audible membership. And now is the best time to do it with a special offer. Access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation mysteries, uh, thrillers, memoirs, and more. You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook, and two audio audible originals you can't hear anywhere else. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, on your commute, or just on the go, or maybe while you're disposing of a corpse. I, I added that to the copy. You'll also enjoy easy auto audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audiobook library you keep forever, even if you cancel. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just six ninety five a month. That's more than half of the regular price. Give yourself the gift of listening. And while you're at it, think about giving the gift of Audible to someone on your list. For more, go to audible.com slash dingo or text dingo to 500-500. That's what the youth do. Is that what it is? What the kids are doing today? So, um, right now for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. So go to audible.com slash dingo or text dingo to 500-500 to get started. That's Audible.com slash dingo or just text dingo to 500 500.
That's five zero zero five zero zero. So have you have you gotten the slash dingo shirts yet? I, I got one. Um, I, I think you need to. Ma- I think you need the merch. Yeah, no, I agree. It's just it's just there are so many things I need to do these days. Like, <laughs> you know. um, so populism. Yeah, it's quite. Um, I, by the time listeners hear this, they might also be able to get access to my latest uh, Goldberg file newsletter thing, with Bob. And one of the things I write about in there is how I think that one of the things that defines the moment that we're in, and Matthew Cottonetti did a good piece about this a few couple of years ago, is how we don't realize it, but that there has actually, in fact, been a populist takeover of the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. And um, and so when that happens, all of a sudden, the definition of what it means to be a conservative is actually about – is actually – about how loyal you are to the populist movement. That's and right. So you see people going after Bill Crystal, right? And I, I, I have tactical disagreements about how Bill's responded to the Trump era. Um, but the guy's a conservative, right? I mean, right. I, I, I haven't heard that he's come out to be pro-choice or right. anti-tax cuts or any of that right. kind of stuff, right? But you find more and more people referring to him as a quote-unquote conservative or he, a fake he is, conservative. He has not fallen into it, and I will not name the name. But every time I see uh, on Twitter a, a publication uh, clickbaiting and it says conservative columnist calls out Trump, and I'm like, oh, I know who that is. And right. I don't I don't need to read that because she's not a conservative. Yeah. And there's a lot of that going on. And it's funny. If you go back and you look at the Reagan presidency, and I think Reagan, you know, more than any president of the 20th century, uh, bent an ideological movement to his own personality. For decades afterwards, you say you were a Reaganite, right? Or what right. would Reagan do? Right, 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 right. And yet, under Reagan, there are lots of people on the right who attacked him kind of viciously, a little viciously, or sharply criticized various things, including George Will and William F. Buckley, oh, yeah. who liked him personally. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I went through some of it. I think Howard F- Phillips called him a useful idiot for the Soviets yep. and all this kind of stuff. No one – Took from that 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 therefore George Will or William F. Buckley or Howard Phillips or any of those guys weren't conservatives, but now you hear this argument that, and it's often just sort of implied that if you don't genuflect to Donald Trump or to the nationalist movement, or if you don't commit almost all of your energies to hating his enemies, well, that's yes, you're not a real conservative. Yes, and you know you in your book you definitely. Explore the the causation. Uh, I think the SAS book um, is very good. Them is very good. Uh, it's right there. Uh, it's also available on Audible. Also available on Audible. Um, and in talking about the origins of this, from my piece of it, from where I sit, the hatred of our enemies. Right. The old speaking of Reagan, the old Reagan line: uh, "We don't have enemies; we only have opponents." Right. Um, but the 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 destruct the destruction of the enemy. I I can't tell you exactly where it started. I assume probably circa Clinton impeachment or mm-hmm. thereabouts. But getting to the point where the opponent isn't just uh, wrong right. or foolish or misguided or even corrupt. Right. It is that the person is wicked and is actually interested in harming the country and. You saw it with George W. Bush, who whatever you think about the invasion of Iraq and whether that was a 
you know, a good idea or a bad idea, uh, a good idea poorly executed or whatever. The, the idea that George W. Bush intentionally lied right. so that he could drag the United States into war with Iraq is accusing the president of treason. Mm-hmm. That's, it's not just that, it's not just that he was wrong. It's that he sent men to their deaths. Uh, in service of Halliburton. Right. Or and, that he, he blew up the World Trade Center. Or that he blew up the right, trade. Right, right. And, and that one, look, that's in, you know, 20% of Americans believe in Bigfoot. Right. And Bigfoot erotica. Yeah. Well, and now there is a, one, one flows from the other. One flows from the <laughs> other. And now there is an author of Bigfoot erotica in the United, there's going to be I one know. in the United States Congress. I keep meaning you did to it. talk about this. I mean, I, I you it, did it. This is not the movement I planned on launching, but <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that that's how a lot of people who led great American political movements felt. But it has begun. Yeah. Denver Riggleman uh, is uh, in Congress from the Fighting Fifth District of Virginia. I really shuddered at the you know that old line about how you only get one sentence in your obituary yeah, to claw. define yeah, you, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. So, uh, Jonah Goldberg, the the initiator of a sweeping Bigfoot erotica movement right. died today. That's not that's the right. sentence I want. Goldberg, comma, who popularized uh, Bigfoot erotica, comma, I think could be – it could be good. Yeah. But the <laughs> 20 percent of the people are going to believe anything, yeah. right? 20 percent of the people – and it's always a different 20 percent. So the, the World Trade Center truthers – uh, whatever. Like, I, I don't pay a lot of heed to that. But it was a pretty mainstream precept in mm-hmm. the Democratic Party <clears throat> that George W. Bush had lied about the weapons of mass destruction and that it was a pretext for a war that he just wanted to start. That's a monstrous accusation to make about right. somebody. And they did it without evidence. Right. Um, and then that was met with in round two. Uh, Barack Obama is a secret Kenyan mm-hmm. uh, who is a Muslim who – and the prevalence of birtherism among Republicans was huge. Yeah. I mean relative – you know, we're talking here about 40 percent and open questions. Well, uh, I forget who it was. Well, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure – and the cop-outs that they took on that were reflective of this othering and the accusations of dispatriotism and all of that stuff. Now, I know there are people who think that Donald Trump is really a Russian stooge and is here as a henchman of the Kremlin or is compromised. And I understand that there are people who believe that that's the case. But how are you going to have a political discussion with somebody who you think is acting as an an agent of Vladimir Putin, right? And how are you going to have a political discussion with somebody who uh, has is a usurper, a Kenyan usurper, uh, who is here uh, as a fifth column to destroy the United States from within? And if that's the st- if those are the stakes, then disloyalty is totally unacceptable right. because if you give any aid and comfort to these other people who are really trying to destroy the United States and when you talk it's scary for me when you talk to both Republicans and Democrats but especially Republicans now that Robert Mueller is trying to destroy the United States and right. and, and reverse an election uh or that um I'm trying to think of what the but the the so the Arizona recount mm-hmm. or which wasn't a recount it was just a count um and it wasn't that close and well, they're stealing the election. Right. What are you talking about? They're stealing the election. Do you have any evidence of it? No, but they are because that's what they do. Yeah. And the prevalence of that kind of thinking means that if Bill Crystal criticizes Donald Trump, he's he is nurturing uh, this evil that is growing within the country. It's aid and comfort. Yeah. Yeah. And and what are you supposed to do with somebody who does that? I also think, as it relates to the populace taking over the Republican Party, I think that another thing that happened. Um, is 
conservatives forgot that conservatism is not popular. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason that AEI is AEI. There's a reason Heritage is here. There's a reason that people endow chairs and spend money. There's a reason we have a Bill of Rights right. is because there are some things free. We'd like to pretend free speech is popular. Free speech is not popular. Right. And all of that stuff. So conservatives, after a really impressive period of success, of no ideological movement in the 20th century can claim uh, the accomplishments that conservatives achieved from the mid 1950s to the turn of the 21st century—that's an amazing, an amazing run. Yeah. Um, reshape the intellectual uh, uh, heritage of the country. All of these other things is amazing accomplishment. But they forgot along the way that these things are not as popular as they think they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the that was the main reason why Mitt Romney lost. Yep. Is that they constantly talked as if everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Right. And you can say wonderful things about entrepreneurs, but also recognize that most people just want to make a decent living and provide for their families and maybe their kids can grow up to be an entrepreneur. That's right. And they lost that language a little bit. You know, instead it was the makers and the takers kind of thing. The makers and the takers and also this is going to hurt. Mitt Romney's uh, – the Romney-Ryan real slogan should have been, this is going to hurt. Yeah. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to we're gonna mess with the Social Security net. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna screw around with that. But it's going to be bad. We're going to save it for the future. And they looked like a couple of guys who had been sent from the home office to your plant. Right. Uh, and yes, there are going to be some layoffs, but it's going to be better for everybody on the other side. And uh, austa- preaching austerity <laughs> – I'm sorry, America, but pre- uh, you, you are never going to – to be open to candidates uh, crisscrossing the country preaching austerity. Yeah. It's just not not cool. But there's also a double bind when you do that makers and takers talk, mm-hmm. right? Either you're going to do it as a sort of dog whistle about mm. race stuff, Welfare right? Queens, yes. Or you're going to do it on actuarial tables, right? And right, and so you know there wasn't a despite things that people like Michael Tomaski said about how you know Romney was a pyromaniac racist and all this nonsense. Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan weren't going to do that. No. And so if your argument is absent culture issues and you're talking about makers and takers, a lot of the members of your coalition are just as a matter of math takers, right? right? Right. I mean, they're retired. They're on Social Security. They're on Medicare. Those are the ones who are driving the entitlement crisis and all the rest. And that's a really hard sell to do as a non-social issue. And they were not well-equipped to do it. And and how do you and by and by the way this is uh, a challenge for Democrats, presuming so we are now in the longest economic expansion where we will be in January, the longest economic expansion in American history, or since we've been measuring such things, it's amazing. Uh, the period of time that we've gone without a recession, the beginning of the recovery was weak, right? But we're now in like three year three years of a very good economy. And wages have – the wage increases finally kicked in. Uh, the Fed is – seems to be handling inflation. Uh, and thing, there, there are concerns, obviously, but let's say uh, it persists. If you're the Democrats, what are you running on? Right. What are you running what, – what is it that you're going to say? And this was a certain degree of problem that, Ro- that Romney and Ryan had. Things had gotten – Barack Obama was able to say, okay – uh, what it, the Joe Biden line? General Motors is alive and Osama bin Laden is dead. Right. And Republicans said, but it's not as good as it could be. We could unleash the economy even more. You're having two and a half percent growth. We could promise four percent growth. Eh. I mean, it's right. it's not compelling. And if if Trump is running with a good economy, 
uh, in 2020? Again, a totally open question. But if that's the case, where do Democrats go and where they go? And I think Josh Crossauer is one who has written on this very well. The, uh, the new moralists of the Democratic Party. They have, they, they want to talk about income inequality. They want to talk about those Medicare for all. But really what they've got is Donald Trump is a bad person. Racism is bad. Sexism, sexism is bad. So the culture war, Democrats are trying to get back in on the culture war and they're trying to find it from the left. Yeah. So I, I am deeply skeptical that that message works. But that, again, it doesn't work without Donald Trump. That's for sure. Yeah. No, that's right. But, you know, part of the problem also, you know, is that, you know, I've been making this argument for years and years is that immigration is detrimental to socialism. Mm-hmm. And there's a, actually an enormous amount of social science about this that some people want to say it's a racist finding and I'm sure racism plays a part, but it's also just a human finding that human beings are far more likely to agree to a generous social safety net oh, yeah. when your grandmother looks exactly like my grandmother, they speak the same language and you all feel like you're members of your own right. tribe where you're taking care of each other. Newcomers are just treated differently. Right. And and so the the weird bind that the left is in is that they want to preach social solidarity. They What they really want to preach is nationalism. They just can't call right, it nationalism, right, right. right? I mean, that was, you know, Barack Obama came really close with his economic patriotism. Mm-hmm. And I don't, we don't need to get in the weeds on the nationalism stuff, but nationalism historically is always, always pushes public policy to the left. Well, where, it, where did Obama go to give his uh, new uh, economic nationalism? Was it in Asatomi? Asawatomi, Kansas, yeah. the same place where uh, Teddy Roosevelt rolled out the square deal for the 1912 election. Right. A very intentional thing, exactly nationalistic. Right. And that's exactly the, the, the whole point. But I, I think the problem that we have, Republicans look at, I made a joke, which was Donald Trump was Katy Perry mm-hmm. uh, and Hillary Clinton was Taylor Swift. Uh, Donald Trump was Katy Perry. Uh, it's a fun. Uh, I mean it unless you hate it. And then laws. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just I want to I want to hear the liner notes on this. <laughs> the, the, the laws. Uh, and then the Hillary Clinton, Taylor Swift feeling everything very deeply, see, okay. very shatteringly, uh-huh. very emotionally, uh, and all of that. So the, the sincerity versus insincerity argument. But I, I think that for Republicans, they are, th- they used to be a party that was focused on good economy, robust economy. And certainly Trump is scoring on that. That's his best place. But they found out a way to win again on the culture war after a long time where they were losing. Republicans right. were losing on the culture war. Democrats are always hampered by the fact that if you follow it, look, Marxism is uh, not dead, uh, certainly as uh, certainly in the academy. And if you take, and as I said before, about listening to this debate among Democrats about what's the way forward, if you think that people are the life of Julia, if it, if it is the sum of your how much you're receiving, how much do you have, how secure are you in your job, do you have health insurance, that that completes you, that's not enough. Yeah. And if they, if Democrats can't find a way, Republicans will continue to steal Democrats' lunch if Democrats can't find a way to talk about social issues in a way that matters. I think one thing often forgotten, Barack Obama was so mocked for they get bitter, they cling to their guns, and they right. cling to their religion. He was defending those voters. That's right, yeah. He yeah. was talking to wealthy 
Uh, they were in like Pacific Palisades. They were in some in shockingly wealthy part uh, in Marin County or something. And it's like, why are these people so racist and terrible in Pennsylvania and they won't vote for you? And Obama made the same argument that Donald Trump made in a very different way, which was, look, for 40 years of uh, globalization and uh, automation, their communities have been crushed. Uh, they have been – America has won through trade. America has won through uh, automation. Many, America is much richer and more secure because of these things. But there were losers. Right. And if you lost, if you were if you were from a place in, you know, the Mahoning Valley in Ohio or if you were in southwestern Pennsylvania and you lost, yes, the, you're going to cling to your culture. Mm-hmm. And he used he used the wrong words, but he understood that. Obama, Barack Obama understood that. I don't know if Democrats understand that. Yeah, see, the thing I always loved about his whole clinging to your sky god and your boomsticks thing <laughs> was uh, he was explaining how these racist voters, or at least responding to the accusation that they were racist voters, were voting for Hillary Clinton. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and like, I like how I just like the notion that voting in a Democratic is like. This thing with Nancy Pelosi this week about I love that she's using the gender card yeah, yeah, yeah. on her own caucus. On her own caucus. Right. You know, um, and Clyburn using the race card on yeah. his own caucus. And we've gotten into the, it's sort of like the, um, grievance decathlon as we, as we go. And then Marsha Fudge, she is both a woman and African American right. to show up to see if, the, and for, you know, for Democrats, it, it sounds almost risable. But you look at the discussion, how many pictures, how many comparisons have you seen online, in print, and on television? Look at how white the new Republican class is and right. look at how diverse the Democrats are. This is reflective of the new moralism on the left where anti the cause is the, – the no greater cause hath our nation from this point of view than anti-racism. And evidence of being against racism is by demonstrating the inclusion of people of color and women. Yeah. And that's it. See, but the, there are a couple of problems with that. One is um, they're becoming the party of Zoolander. They only have one look, right? right? You know, they, they can only do blue steel. Right. But also, I mean, when you're going back to what you were saying before about um, how to get back on cultural issues, the cultural issues that they're playing on, they only resonate to the extent that they arouse real passion among that sort of government union mm-hmm. kind of constituency. People who go to college and grad school, whatever, they live in urban areas – um, and it's kind of, it's, it's a major bubble, right? That they're living in. And so there are two problems with it. One is, is that it's just factually untrue that this country is getting more racist. I mean, you look at almost any survey data about the number of people who said, um, they wouldn't want to live next to a black person, right. number of white people, right? Uh, who said they wouldn't want to live next to a black person. It's infinitesimally small now, including in the South. Right. Um, the rate of intermarriage between yep. races. You know, the idea that all white people, you know, that sort of Twitter meme of, yes, all white people are racist. Well, what kind of knob-headed idiot white supremacist are you to go marry a black person and make babies with them? Big mistake. If you're a white supremacist, you know. Big mistake. But so I think the only way that you can get out of that bubble and make the argument that the Democrats need to make, maybe not the only way, but one of the only ways I can see, is to go back to sort of the Bernie Sanders argument about immigration. Because part of the bind that Democrats have is that they've tied immigration in with a diversity argument. Oh, yeah. And part of that is because of this dream prophecy of making white people a minority in the this re- country. The route right? to share a emerging Democratic majority. Right. It will happen for us. Set it and forget it. 
Right. And the, 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 the problem with that is, first of all, that antagonizes white people to a great degree. Yes. It also doesn't recognize the fact that lots of Hispanics call themselves white and more yes. and more do the more they move up to socioeconomic and ladder. And also, if, if I may, also one of the big mistakes about, uh, the Democrats made in the wake of the 2004 election was thinking of Hispanic voters as a monolithic right, block. Right. And they are absolutely not. And, uh, uh, I was doing a panel and, uh, somebody said, um, you know, California, basically his argument, and I'm summing it up, uh, probably not doing it complete justice, but essentially California is democratic because of Hispanics. Right. And I said, or are Hispanics in California Democrats because they're Californian? Right. Uh, cause that's not the case in Texas. Right. And it's not even the case in Arizona. It's certainly not been the case in Florida. The idea that there is new immigrants do tend to be more uh, Democratic than Republican simply because Democrats tend to be the party for people who feel like they need help. They want some right. help with something. And right. and the Democrats say, we're the party. We're going to help you. And Republicans say, we're the party for when you're established and we'll protect what you've got. Um, but I think the Democrats broadly overinterpreted that idea. Yeah. I mean, there's a philosophical irony to it, right? Which is this whole thing about how um, we shouldn't negate people's identity. Right. But telling uh, a Mexican, you are indistinguishable from a Cuban or a right. Chilean. Right. You know, it's supposedly just fine when they're very different cultures. They're very different people. They're often they're very different ethnicities. You know, um, I'm very happy that we will never again in our history, pray God, uh, replicate the horrors of slavery, Jim Crow, uh, segregation, and then the struggle to end those evils. Uh, those had a singular effect on a very large minority group in the United right. States. And the idea that that is going to be repeated. And what's interesting, but so the United States, we will have a minority white, including white Hispanics, uh, minority white electorate in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we will have a, or no, we'll have a minority white population in about 10 years. And then in about 20 years, we'll have a minority white electorate. Right. And, um, un- under that premise, Democrats say we can't, once we get to that point, we can't lose. But it may happen that Hispanic voters, uh, get rich. Right. <laughs> and it may happen that they succeed. And it may happen that the second and third generations, uh, as I'm often fond of saying, if you told me the name and address of a voter in 1925, I could probably tell you their party affiliation right, to right. a pretty good, de- to a pretty good degree. If you were Irish or you were Italian, uh, or any part of the Ellis Island, you were uh, almost certainly going to be a Democrat. Right, right. Um, now the fact, if your last name is Matadots or McCarthy or, uh, Scalia, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Right, right. right and right. I think that, I think they understated that. All right. So I want to get to that. I want to go to talk about the parties and all that kind of stuff in a second. But first, we have to talk about stamps. Speaking of John Kasich. Yes. Did you know that his father was a mailman? A mailman, you say. A letter carrier. <laughs> I, I talked about this with Garrity the other day. Um, I'm, I'm obsessed with this image I can't let go of. Of You know how um, Cory Gardner loves to do those stand-uppers in front of um, his family's tractor dealership? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. And I just always love the idea of Kasich, because he loves talking about his dad as a mailman, if he could just have like his dad on like a chain on a stake in his backyard, <laughs> just sort of circling around, putting mail and stuff. Um, but I, I, I don't want to disparage mailmen. They are fine. And, Hardly, and women, yes. mail carriers of Letter all kinds. Carriers, yes, sir. Of all, of all 56 genders, they're all great. So 
These days, you know, you can practically get everything on demand, including this podcast. You can listen to it whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. But did you know you can even get postage on demand? All you need is stamp.com. I like stamp.com. I use it. Um, I like getting it, it like, I actually put a lot of things in the mail still. Mm, good for you. Um, not very little with white powder in it, but you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't rule it out entirely. I also get a lot of things in the mail and I worry about the white powder, but that's a different story. You can get postage on demand. All you need is stamp.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. Buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter on any package. All available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just click, print, mail, and you're done. Stamps.com will even send you a digital scale. You can weigh your letters and packages and print the exact amount of postage every time. So I've used Stamps.com. I think it's great. I think it's useful. I, I know this shocks listeners, uh, but I am known uh, in certain circles for my lethargy. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I find this is one of the um, great, you know, I, I'm trying to trim niggling little details out of my life, and, and Stamps.com isn't great for that. So right now, you can use Dingo for this special offer. Go to Stamps.com slash – oh, I'm sorry. You don't go to Stamps.com slash Dingo. You go to Stamps.com and type in Dingo. That's Stamps.com and then just enter D-I-N-G-O. We want to thank Stamps.com for sponsoring the Remnant Podcast. And now, back to our show. And I, Dingo is a promo code. I don't know if I've heard that one before. Yeah, I like that. So, um, I have this theory. I flew it past um, Garrity on our post-election rank punditry show. I didn't get the answers that I wanted. Okay. And I think that you are, in some ways, better situated to give me the answers that I want. I don't want. know. Jim knows a lot of things. He does. No, I'm not disparaging Jim in the slightest. And did you hear his Ted Cruz impersonation? It was it, – it. I listened to it in my hotel room in New York, and I had been in New York for far too long, and I was so desperate to come home, and it – it shook me to my core. It sent like I I was terrified. I was I was naked and afraid. I felt suddenly naked and afraid. Um, the best part about it was Jack Butler, who's normally in the studio listening um, along. When he started doing it, Jack kind of kind of lost it. He kind of flipped out. <laughs> it's, it's it's deeply un, it's almost as unnerving as the original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I have this theory. I talked about it actually on NPR this morning with Stephen Skeep. Um. You know the whole argument, the party decides. Right. Right. So uh, I've come to the conclusion that one of the problems that we have, as you know, I'm a big believer that, uh, and I talk about it all the time on the podcast, about how a lot of our problems are downstream of the erosion of civil society, so. loss of faith and trust in institutions and all the rest. And one of the institutions that we never talk about defending are the parties themselves. Right. We live in the most partisan moment since maybe the 1850s. But the parties themselves have arguably never been weaker never been than this week. Right. And so parties used to do all sorts of important things. You know, they would educate voters. They would frame issues. They would vet candidates. Mm -hmm. They would um, provide a space. It's sort of like Ben Sass's argument about why – that he made at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings about why our politics are so screwed up is because politics isn't happening in Congress. Right. It's also really not happening in the parties. That's right. And so one of the things that has happened, because I think there is a – irreducible amount of political energy in a society right it, it, and it has either it's either it's channeled by the um what's the cube from the 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 
Marvel Comics movies, the oh, Jack will kill me about this. Um, the thing that they were fighting for with Captain America. Ah, ah but it's important. It's really important. Anyway, the, it, the parties are supposed to contain that energy and right. channel it and help societies and institutions organize their political oh, energy. Is this, fr- is this from Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah, that thing. That thing is. I love that movie, and it has a great soundtrack. Yes, and the. But it's a yeah, it's it's like a crystal or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, and if you put them together, then yeah. they blah blah blah. It's blah, blah. actually the tesseract. Ah, Jesus, saved. This is gonna saved. Now at least Jack won't burn a bag of dog poop at my front door <laughs> or another one. Um. So, uh, so what has happened, sort of invisibly, and we didn't really notice. For a bunch of reasons, the direct uh, the direct election primaries that started after McGovern, very much uh, campaign finance reform that very made much. it much easier to give to PACs and outside institutions and donor networks than actually give to parties, right? Um, so parties had less and less and less ability to control their own message, right? And so instead, what has happened is you have these donor networks who are like the Cokes, who I'm I I am fond of and I don't disparage in the slightest, or George Soros. Who I criticize, but I don't do it because he's a filthy Jew. You know, I do it because he's a liberal guy who gets spotted with process. the caravan. Yeah, um, uh, and uh, they sort of serve as like party bosses now. And um, but, do they? Well, in a sense, right? In the sense that they are part of the smoke filled room, but now it's out and open and transparent. Right. And and then you have. Uh, in the media, you have big chunks of the mainstream media that increasingly are um, the message shapers for liberals or the Democratic Party. You have the New York Times telling its readers to call Congress to mm-hmm. lobby against the tax bill. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, you have, and because of this blue bubble stuff that we we're talking about earlier, the the national media. You know, Charlie Cook talks about this a lot on the editor's podcast. The national media's coverage of the recount in Florida is garbage. They constantly want to make it about, um, you know, voter suppression and right. Republicans stealing things. But the actual local coverage is actually really good and it's nonpartisan, yeah. right? And, uh, so they, the national, the sort of MSM gets to frame the narrative in ways that the party can't or won't anymore. And here at our August Fox mm. News, the opinion side, mm-hmm. um, very much often operates as a message transmission belt. Mm-hmm. For um, another party. Yep. And um, and I think that part of the problem that we have these days is that we think the parties are one of these institutions, like the establishment or the globalists, right. that have this enormous power over us. When in reality, they're incredibly weak, um, and that we would be better off if we actually gave the parties more power to actually control their own message and think about their long-term institutional interests. Um, for themselves. Um, I, the way I have said it is weak parties equals more partisanship. Right. Um, and we have a crisis. Uh, we have, you, uh, when you mentioned campaign finance reform, they gutted the, uh, two parties. Right. McCain Feingold, uh, knocked them down because the belief was, uh, our, Politics were too partisan because the parties had too much money. Mm-hmm. There was too much money in politics, and we're going to take this soft money, this demon soft money, away from the parties. Now, of course, much like earmarks do or did in Congress, that soft money that the party could raise was both a carrot and a stick. Right. Get in line and quit doing – it's sort of like uh, Steve King in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a really good example. The Republican leadership, everybody said – this person is unacceptable. We are 
we we denounce Steve King right. and uh, all of his works. And they say it, and everybody knows it's a joke because they don't have any power to do right. anything to him. Right. Steve King raises his own money. He gets his own money from donors. The NRCC not helping him in that uh, far western district of Iowa, that's not going to add up to anything. So we're going to say that we don't like Steve King, but the joke's on the Republicans because right. so what? Right. The So they take away the money from the party. And then with the Citizens United decision, the Supreme Court says, and by the way, any outside group can spend as much money as they want all the time. J.B. Pritzker, I was astonished. His campaign was congratulating itself for how awesome it was and spending $161 million of J.B. Pritzker's money to win a race that Pippa could have won <laughs> in Illinois against Bruce Rauner, who had uh, was underwater even among Republicans in Illinois. And they were talking about all of the great things they did. And I had two thoughts. Number one, you must not be that good at what you do if you were dumb enough to let a Politico reporter come into your campaign for three weeks and cover <laughs> how you uh, spent enough money to burn a wet elephant. Uh, and number two, is no one ashamed anymore? Yeah. Is no one ashamed anymore of spending a, I'm an heir to a hotel fortune? It's not like it's not like he made it uh, inventing the the glasses holders from the jerk. This is a guy who uh, was born on third base, acts like he hit a hit a triple, and bragging about how he spent 160 million dollars on a race. Yeah, uh, that should be embarrassing or shameful, but it's not anymore. Right. And the it's interesting how the discussion about money in politics. There's never been more money in politics. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. And we are seeing not just with the Kochs, but Tom Steyer mm -hmm. and other Democratic donors. I, I am not prone to be a believer in the rise of the American oligarchy any more than the American oligarchy has are, uh, we've been, if, if we're there now, we've been there for, for a long time, for a long time. Um, but if that's the case, we are perhaps entering this era where with weak parties, if you've got the stroke, right, if you have the billions and you do all of that in an interview with, I think, The Economist, Anthony Scaramucci said that he would consider Donald Trump's presidency a success if 20 years from now a guy like Jeff Bezos was president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And this thing that's happening – and it's going on and it's definitely taking place just because Donald Trump uh, won without spending as much money as Jeb Bush or as Hillary Clinton. The power of this money is there. The parties were really good places to put that money. Right. Parties were really good places to put that money because, as you say, there's a social capital question. Being a Republican or being a Democrat, um, my I, in my family, my father was the first person in my family – no, there were two – uh, between 1856 and 1992, only once, the 1932 election, when my grandfather voted for uh, uh, FDR, mm -hmm. a, a choice he uh, immediately and forever regretted for the rest <laughs> of his life. My father's vote for Ross Perot in 1992 was the first time any he or any of his lineal antecedents had voted not for a Republican. Yeah. The power of partisanship and membership in a party as a social institution and a social construct was enormously valuable. Now everybody knows these parties are jokes. No, being the chair, being the chairman or chairwoman of one of these parties now, you got no power. Nobody listens to you. You get to go on TV, and all you really get to do anymore is run a convention. You get to run what you which, get is, to, which is an infomercial now. Right. It's not what it once was. And it, but there are rules and there are nominating processes, but that's it. And everything else is kind of myth.
Yeah, so the, the one thing I'd push back on that is that you say everybody knows. I think everybody sort of around where we are on Capitol yeah, yeah, Hill yeah. knows this, right? But I think there is the – it's like the average person out there, particularly the average person on the left or the right of a populist bent still thinks the parties are really powerful. Right. Right? It's sort of like I remember being so stunned when I first started doing college speaking stuff t- almost 20 years ago. How many kids would say you know, about whatever I was talking about? They would say, well, that all sounds fine and good, but how is that even possible – when big corporations are running our lives, yeah. right? And the reality is, is that certainly before Amazon and Google where you, or Facebook where it's a slightly different argument, but the idea 20 years ago that Procter & Gamble right. was running this kid's life was just so paranoid and weird. With lobbyists. Yeah. And so the, but people think this stuff, right. right? And so I think one of the reasons why that um, the Ross Perot thing or the Trump thing, um, one of the reasons why these – or Pritzker – these rich guys, they can say, hey, look, nobody owns me. Nobody owns me. Right? And – but as for a, for a country, you actually want them to be owned a little bit <laughs> well, <laughs> by an institution that actually cares about its brand and the, the longevity of American democracy and all sorts of things. And moreover, having – being owned by having a claim on you uh, is also known as being in community, right? Right. That having these things that, oh, I got to take care. Donald Trump does it too, right? I got to take care of the evangelicals. I got to take care of the energy people. When he gave a uh, uh, presidential medal of freedom to Sheldon Adelson's wife, it wasn't just because he admired her work for the American Zionist groups. Uh-huh. The, he, he, he does the same stuff sure. that they do. But what he's doing and what Democrats do as well, they're the globetrotters out dunking on the Washington generals, right? right. They're like, oh, the, the party's trying – Cory you will – poor Tom Perez, who is a good guy. He said mm-hmm. like a nice man. Um, what his – what Democrats are going to do to him over the next 18 months yeah. as they – the wicked Tom Perez and their control of this process, come on. Give me a break. He doesn't have the resource. He doesn't have that kind of clout. I will promise you that in an era before Citizens United and before McCain-Feingold, when Donald Trump rode the escalator – uh, whoever the chairman of the Republican Party was would have picked up the phone and said, if you touch him, right. if you get near him, if I hear even that you have been around him, he would have called state chairman and he would have said, if I hear anything, you're dead yeah. and you'll never get another penny and you'll be cut off. And that would have stuck. Now, that's not democratic. That is definitely not democratic. But these parties were not democracies. These parties held conventions on the state level. They held ca- uh, conventions on the county level and they fed into it was like uh, it was like the Rotary or the Masons for politics. Right. And you had to be an activist and you had to pay your dues. And, and instead, we've shifted to this thing where out of a belief that populism will fix our problems – which it is usually the both it is both the, what did Homer Simpson say about beer the cause of and solution, and solution to. to all of our problems <laughs> um, as as and populism is very much that way but the belief that if by introducing more populist sentiment more popular vote into the process that somehow it would be better has been a, a catastrophic failure and with these weak parties I promise you the partisanship will increase to the point where only one of two things by my lights can happen either. 
somebody will find a way to take advantage of it and and run as a a soothing a balm right yeah. that someone will find that that there's too much money on the table in the middle that somebody sooner or later is going to find a way to come in and scoop that up or number two we we don't have two parties anymore, but we have 12 parties and that the factions break down within the factions and that I'm this kind of that and I'm that kind of that. And you're you're not you're not part of my tribe anymore. And we go that way because we don't have enough glue to hold it all together. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think on a bunch of fronts, one of the things that our society is so messed up about is we kind of have an autoimmune disease. You know, when you have an autoimmune disease, your body's natural defenses start attacking healthy organs because mm-hmm. they think they're bad. Because of the riot of sort of romantic individualism and all the rest, we are constantly looking to, first of all, fight racism, which I'm not saying it's non-existent, but it is not the, it is not the right. boogeyman that they want it to turn into and rebelling against every conceivable institution. One of the things that one of the analogies I keep coming up with is it's sort of like the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had all sorts of problems, you know, particularly under the, the bad popes, um, to use a technical term. And um, uh, a true story, a friend of mine – Top five worst popes, go. <laughs> a, a, a friend of mine was asking a buddy of his who was in graduate school in Rome studying church history. And he was like, what's – a you know, I'm really interested in like the Borgias and that whole stuff, you know. He's like, what, what, you know, what would you recommend to read? And the guy was like – well, you could read Hurley's five-volume history of the medieval church, or you could read, you know, O'Shaughnessy's, you know, fourteen-volume blah blah. And he says, or there's a really wonderful slender volume called The Bad Popes, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's sort of the every man a king of that's church that's history. Right. There yeah. you go. That's what we're here for. And uh, um, but the Catholic Church, because it was an institution with a very long time horizon. Mm-hmm. Knew when to bend, when to break, how to do internal reforms, deal with things. The the riot of, and I'm not trying to disparage. I know that you are of, you're not, you're not Lutheran. No, 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 no. But you used Anglican, to attend, Anglican, Anglican. Okay. Anglican. But there was this time in the early Reformation where you had, you know, riots of iconoclasm, and you know, yeah. they're burning, tearing down statues and burning paintings and all that kind of stuff. Because once you lose the constraining force of an institution, you don't know where all the bright lines are. And it right. takes a long time to sort of figure them out. And now all those Protestant churches, for the most part, have figured a lot of those out. And, you know, that's great. But we live in this moment where we're constantly thinking that there are these institutions that are controlling our lives. When, that's in right. fact, these institutions are incredibly sick. And um, in, in part because we think they're stronger than they are. And so we keep attacking them, thinking that if we can just fix them – It'll be better. And that's actually the exact wrong way to go. Well, and I would say, you know, you dealt with this very well in your book, but talking about basically this uh, in, individualism is is awesome and it's wonderful and people ought to be the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. But the idea that we will make ourselves happy. Right. That somehow we will make ourselves happy by uh, destroying all of this stuff and the – who somebody wrote a really good piece recently i can't remember who it was that said the future to fear is not 1984 right the future to fear is a brave new world yes yeah and uh, it it hit like a tuning fork inside of me and that is very much the case where we are um we're doing it to ourselves 
and we're not going to be overawed by some uh, some monstrous new uh, tyrant, but in fact, we are going to just do it to ourselves. And it's amusing ourselves to death uh, times 10,000. And, and I think all of that is very true. I think, though, this. Unless when – when I give my talk, I always say the same thing at the end. I say – Unless we can tip your server, tip your server, please tip your server. Try the veal. Try the veal. It's young. Um, but it is unless we find a way to bind up the smallest institutions closest to the people, we will be forever miserable. The, uh, I say we have cultural type two diabetes. We're so rich. We're so prosperous. We're so safe. We're so at all of these things are true that we're inventing things to be upset about. Right. Um, and George Will actually wrote about this about Pat Buchanan and he was, he was making the point that when you're, when things are good, then you can think of new things to be unhappy about. You can think right. of new complaints. Well, the real problems, the parties or the, da, 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 and all of those things. But when you're engaged in struggle, you're very likely to overlook those things. And until we can get to a point, and I, I just, I guess what I hope is whatever we have to suffer to make us willing to be willing again, um, I hope it's not too bad. Yeah. But I know that I, I I hate to say, I uh, hate to sound like a Presbyterian, uh, <laughs> but but uh, it's coming right. The consequences come when you forget these things, when you neglect these things. The consequences invariably present themselves, and sometimes it's uh, a world war. Uh, sometimes it's a global depression. Sometimes it's uh, all. History records all manner of uh, uh, own goals on cultures where people have forgotten the truth about these things. And when things get bad enough, people get ready to be good again. I just hope that whatever we have to suffer to get good again isn't as bad. I, I hope that we get off uh, even more lightly than America did 50 years ago in the period between, let's say, Dealey Plaza and the roof of the U.S. Embassy at Saigon. I hope we get off. That was pretty bad. Yeah. 50,000 dead in Vietnam, riots in more than 100 cities and political assassinations and all of that. I hope we get off easier than that. Uh, but that was pretty easy by historical standards. Yeah. And not to be depressing, I, I largely agree with that argument in the sense that I think that's one way out. Mm-hmm. But I hate embracing that argument because you don't want to be in a position where the worse, the better. Yeah. The worse, the better. You're just, you're hoping things, you know, that, you know, that, that if we just get smacked around a little bit by some, by China or the aliens right. or chuds or whatever, that everything will be better. You don't, you don't want to root for bad things to happen. And stay, the stay puff marshmallow man. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but I do think that the, um, um, that my brain no longer works. Uh, I completely <laughs> forgot what I was going to say. What you started thinking about chuds? I did. Were, I did. And you were you were gone. And then you I, were gone. It's sort of like that. One of my favorite parts, scenes from The Simpsons, is when Homer says, "Give me things scoop food with," <laughs> and Marge says, "You mean a spoon, homie?" <laughs> um, uh, I just completely lost it. It was going to be good. It was going to be. I'm going to mark it down as excellent. Yeah, it may, it may be as good as some of the stuff we had in episode 11. All right, so <laughs> I know you got to go. Uh, we need to wrap up. I want to thank you for doing this. I I don't remember the last time we had you on. I used to ask this question about like what is the one thing mm -hmm. that did I ask you that last time? Yeah, and I said uh, basically how incompetent everybody is. Yeah, so that's a really really common answer, and that gets to and my point about your point exactly. about institutions, right? There, there uh, when. It, 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 
I had, I don't know if I told the story then, but I tell it now. Uh, the friend of mine, uh, the, but the line is, a, a, a great achievement had been unleashed. Uh, and the response was, now remember, it's not that you're that good. It's that the rest of them are that bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, so just uh, some final punditry. Uh, if you had to bet right now, Donald Trump, does he run in 2020 and does he, he win? Um, well, history says yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the verdict of history is yes. Um, I have no way to know uh, what the economy will be like. I have no way to know what uh, the Democrats are going to do. Um, what I'm, what I am dying to know, what I am dying to know, is could a normal person beat Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. Sort of the baseline question for Republicans to consider out there is. Hillary Clinton was not a normal person. She's no. still not a normal person. Right. Uh, Donald Trump is not a normal person. Um, we had two abnormal candidates facing each other, two least popular candidates uh, since we've been measuring favorability, the two worst, and they ran, they happened to run against each other. Um, my, the, the, the unknowable people say, well, Bernie Sanders would have beat him. I don't buy that. Um, I don't, I think he's too out there on mm-hmm. too much stuff, but whatever. I want to know if the Democrats had nominated Tim Kaine, mm-hmm. if they had nominated – if they had nominated a mayonnaise sandwich and said, OK, America, he's not exciting, but do you like him better than Donald Trump? Would the mayonnaise sandwich have won? And a, a crucial question for Democrats is what they have to figure out. Was it Hillary's fault right. or Trump's success? Republicans have concluded that Donald Trump has special magic. Uh, and he has the magic beans and can do special things. And they, and they both uh, revere, admire and fear him. Uh, they all, all of those things. Democrats haven't decided yet. Is Donald Trump brilliant and evil or was Hillary Clinton, did they just happen to pick the worst candidate since George McGovern and therefore faceplant? And, and remember, she won the popular vote and he won with pulling this inside straight about 80,000 votes in five right. counties. So, okay. you know. And so, and so the, 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 Thought experiment for me is always if Hillary Clinton had not run for president and the Democrats had been stuck with Tim Kaine, would Tim Kaine have beat Donald Trump? I think he would have. Mm-hmm. I think he probably I think he probably would have given the closeness of the vote and all of those other things. Um, but I don't know. And Democrats have to do a lot of soul searching about that question over the next year as they get down to this because they got to decide, do they need to go long bomb? Do they mm-hmm. need to go? Is it is it time for a real radical choice to try to outflank Trump or do something crazy? Or would they be better off finding the blandest, right. m- most inoffensive Competent to seem like is it, uh, uh, are we in the dawning of the age of the Hickenlooper? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that retrospectively about 2016 for the most part. I think though that I the pre- history says yes answer is not very persuasive to me. No, no, no. I just I, I mean most of the time the guy running for uh, re-election wins. Right, but most of the time the guy who got elected won the popular vote. Right. Most of the time, he governs as if he's trying to expand his coalition right. rather than shrink his coalition. Uh, most of the time, he doesn't tweet like an escape monkey from a cocaine study. Maybe, maybe let me put it this way: No living being is more likely to take the oath of office on January twentieth, twenty twenty one, than Donald J. Trump. If you're betting Trump against the field, you might want to take the field. You might mm-hmm. say somebody's going to beat him. Yeah, okay. That, I think that's right. I think somebody's going to beat him. But you you can't say there's anyone that we can identify now who is more likely to be taking the oath of office in 2021 than him. I think that's that's right. I think that 
is it is very possible that the Democrats can lose in 2020. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh. But I also think it is extremely possible that, that, that Trump can lose. And well, and especially, and I and I know we're wrapping up here, but just the this thought, it's good for Trump to have a Democratic House in a lot of ways, but it's bad for Trump to have a Democratic House if there is no governor on Trump. If we enter a new phase where, without the right. promise of, well, maybe we could pass some tax cuts, maybe we can pass some things to try to constrain Trump, if this becomes total thermonuclear war with the Democrats every day and no and no constraint on Trump anymore. Uh, this could be the worst thing that happened to him because right. he'll be he he will again be a victim of his own excesses. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And with that, I want to thank you, Chris Steyerwalt. Thank you very much for coming. Please buy, particularly on Audible, "Every Man a King." Uh, li- listen to uh, "I'll Tell You What" with uh, with with Chris and the lovely and talented Dana Perino. And if you can review us, you know the important part here is this: we are still beating them. In reviews on <laughs> iTunes, but the margin is shrinking. In the recount, we're going to do really well. And uh, yeah, well, you're going to invent reviews. <laughs> That's what Podorits does. Um, you know any books I have signed never Podorits to people. Hashtag. Um, but uh, uh, if you, could, it's great if you want to listen to NRO podcasts. That's great. But if you could subscribe to us, it'd be better for us on Stitcher, Google Play, and, and especially iTunes. Um, leave a review if you can. That would be awesome. Say nice things about us. And uh, hopefully we'll get back to the two podcasts a week schedule, maybe at least after Thanksgiving. Um, until then, thanks very much for tuning in. 